Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This program is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series, featuring David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as viewers and listeners know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. Today's episode is the final one of 2022, We've had 23 of these dialogues with David since we launched the series in early January. It's been a masterclass in analyzing and understanding the big policy and political issues that have shaped the past year. I hope that listeners and viewers have enjoyed these conversations as much as I have. In our last one before 2023, I thought that we'd cover some of those big issues, including the war in Ukraine, political unrest in Iran, and global economic and energy trends from the past 12 months. David, thanks for joining me for a final installment of this year's series of From Dialogues. And what a dramatic year it has been. We're having this conversation the day after Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's visit to Washington. So let's start there. Before we look on what's to come next in the war, I wanted to look back at what's, what's transpired over the past several months. David, why do you think the West stepped up so much more than it had in previous instances of Russian military intrusions into Ukrainian territory? What was different about this time? Well, the Russians did something different, which is uh, they made it clear from the start that this was no mere land grab. When they had invaded Ukraine in 2014, they seized territories that were adjacent to Russia or of strategic importance to Russia. They did not challenge the Ukrainian state. This, this time they went straight at, um, with an operation that all, was a decapitation operation aimed at uh, kidnapping or killing senior government officials and changing the government of a European state. That, that was a different kind of, of challenge. What also is different is there has been history that over the past eight years, Ukraine has worked with Western partners and built relationships of they weren't as, as fully trusting in February of this year as they have become, but mm. built relationships of cooperation. And so when the Russians attacked, the attack fell upon a country and a military that already had the beginnings of security ties with Europe and NATO. I, I want to take up a beautiful essay that you penned last night in response to President Zelensky's speech before Congress. What are the broader implications of this episode? What does the expression of Western resolve and President Zelensky's model of leadership signify about the state of the world? And what might be its long-term effects? When Russia attacked Ukraine in 2014, the Obama administration 
filed that attack as a kind of regional challenge and decided that it was not a top priority. One of the reasons that the Russians were successful in 2014 is the United States at that time had as its highest priority, its highest foreign policy priority, achieving a a nuclear agreement with Iran. And because Russian cooperation was important to that agreement, the Obama people made the choice, and I, I don't say this in a critical way, presidents have to make these very hard choices, to subordinate Ukraine and Russia to his overriding preoccupation with achieving an Iranian nuclear deal. What happened this time is uh, it became clear from the instant this was not a regional challenge. This was a challenge to the most fundamental peace and security architecture um, in the world. Uh, the, the network of agreements that were built across the Atlantic after World War II and that were the prototype for the arrangements that are emerging in the Pacific and have emerged really since the Cold War in the Pacific. Um, so th- this is an attack on our whole global architecture of peace and cooperation and, and, and uh, democracy. And it was also clear that the Russians did not have limited goals and what exactly their goals were. But by changing Ukraine, I think they many people here in Washington felt they were they, they were shaking a larger system. They remember, this comes after their interference in the American election in 2016. This comes after their important support for Brexit and for the Scottish independence referendum the year before. And, and it's looking like they're, they're trying to do is smash up everything that we depended upon for security and prosperity. And it elicited this powerful response. And what I wrote in that piece is, I, I think it was one of those moments where Everybody surprised themselves. The Ukrainians surprised themselves. Ukraine was a a very divided country, uh, uh, linguistically, religiously, uh, ideologically. Ukrainians came together. And the Western world has been not in the most efficacious mood in the past few years. And yet we were able to come together and the countries of the European Union came together. And and we all, and then the Ukrainians started to win on the battlefield and the, the weapons started to flow. And I think there was this feeling across the capitals of, of the Western world. You know, we're, we're not as worthless and useless as we, as we thought we were. We can actually do something when we set our minds to it. I would encourage viewers and listeners to check out David's essay. Uh, it, it's, it's some ideas that he's advanced here over the, the course of the year on From Dialogues, but encapsulated um, beautifully and profoundly in this moment after President Zelensky's major address. This dialogue is, I would say this dialogue is a little bit like um, a comedy cabaret where I workshop material that I'll be taking on the road. <laughs> well, we're pleased to, to be part of it. Uh, let's wrap up the part of the conversation about Ukraine by looking to the next year. What comes next, David? How do you envision the conflict coming to some kind of conclusion? Is it Russia conclusively losing the war? Is it the West insisting that Zelensky accepts some type of negotiated settlement? Or will it be a, a sort of protracted conflict? My guess is it will not be a protracted conflict. If I had to guess, I think we will, the Ukrainians will continue to inflict defeats on the Russian army. Those defeats will begin to affect the cohesion of the Republican army. There will be desertions of individuals and then units will begin to crumble. And at some point, and probably in the next year, the Russian state will face a choice very like the German high command faced in 1918, where they have a choice. They, If they keep fighting this war, they will lose the army. And in order to preserve the army, they will give up on the war. And uh, they they will need the army at home. They need the army. It backstops all all of Putin's repression. So it may take a negotiated form, but the, the core of it will come when they face the choice. If this war keeps going, their army cracks up. We'll be following that closely. And we'll have to take uh, this subject back up in 2023 when our dialogues resume. 
But I want to shift to another issue that you put on the list of, of top issues for 2022, and that is the growing unrest and violent crackdowns in Iran. What's going on there? And what are you what, in your view, is its significance? Well, this is another inspiring testament of human resilience and the human spirit um, that there have been many outbursts of protests in Iran before, um, usually ended in that end have ended in fairly rapid crackdown. This is more protracted. It began with um, the state murder of a young woman who didn't want to cover her hair. She was killed, as many women have been. Um, and, and this time, young women decided they were not going to put up with it. And they found friends and companions and support in a, across the political spectrum or across the social spectrum in Iran. And there have been more and more demonstrations, more and more challenges to the clerics. On the other hand, unlike Ukraine, it, it's harder to be optimistic. But I, I would like to be optimistic about how this one will come out. But the repressive capacity of the Iranian state is very great. There seems to be no weakening at all of their will to use atrocity to hold on to power. And they have built, in the midst of total economic collapse of the normal Iranian economy, there is inside Iran this segregated um, uh, clerical um, military economy that has made a lot of people very rich. And their wealth amid the general ruin enrages their fellow citizens. And it um, it's pretty hard to see an end to a peaceful end to the present Iranian regime. And the people in charge of the regime know that. And so they're going to, they're going to hold on because they, they've hung so many people from cranes that they know when the regime does go, that's going to be their fate. And so they will do anything, including a lot of violence in order not, in order not to meet that fate. It, that changes only when some important part of the repressive apparatus sees an exit, sees a reason and an opportunity to exit. Find, and that can only happen and they can only get safety when there's someone on the other side with enough authority to negotiate with them, which, which is if you, if you give up repression, your lives will be safe. And I don't see anything like that. In, in the 1980s, we saw that it, um, you know, it, it, the, the transition from communism began in Poland, the place with the most well-organized opposition movement, solidarity, because solidarity could give a guarantee of safety to people in the old regime. And indeed, they all lived out their lives. As Israel continues to make progress with its Arab neighbors on various cooperation agreements, including incoming Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's vow of full diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia, what will that mean for Iran? Is it becoming isolated? And if so, what are the consequences for the region? Yeah, well, I Iran has always been quite regionally isolated, but not globally isolated. And I think that trend becomes even more key. I mean, they built this very intimate defense sharing relationship with Russia. They may be now at this point, Russia's most important ally. They have an important energy sharing arrangements with, with India. And uh, th those are, are, seem likely to grow. So they, they, do, have, they do have partners. Um, but they, the claim that the partnership rests on some kind of Islamic leadership, well, it's always been absurd, and, and it's now obviously a, a lie. But the Iranian-Russian partnership is, is serious. And if the Russian state begins to wobble, that will be a challenge to the Iranian state. But the, right now, the two are holding, I, I, like two drunks holding each other up. <laughs> Let's shift the conversation to the global economy. Notwithstanding various projections of a deteriorating global economy, the IMF and the OECD are still projecting growth in 2023. There are also signs that inflation has finally peaked. What are we to make of these economic developments? David, are you bullish 
on the global economy? First, the big surprise of 2022 was had we had this conversation at the beginning of the year, we would have expected some kind of downturn. Um, because infl- uh, inflation was boiling, interest rate increases were obviously coming, they have their usual effect, and it looked like we were going to have a very classic, you know, since 1990, the, the pattern has been financial crisis leads to recession. Before that, the pattern was inflation led to higher interest rates, which led to recession. And we were having a pre-19, we seem to be on a pre-1990 path. It didn't happen in 2022. There, just uh, today, there, or I think it was yesterday, rather, they, the, there were a release of U.S. economic statistics that showed that growth in the third quarter was even stronger than it had originally been projected. One reason perhaps that the Democrats did better in the midterms than a lot of people thought. It still seems very likely that the interest rate increases, and not just in the United States, but around the world, will have to slow the economy down. I, I think I've compared this on our conversation before, the, the task of a central banker, it's like that mini golf hole where you have to get the ball through the windmill past the whirring blades without it being without either missing the hole or being knocked aside by the blades. It's a very tough shot. They may execute it. So I, I think it would be dangerous to be bullish. Um, they, there, there may be still more interest rates to come, especially outside the United States. But it didn't happen in 2022. Let's hope it doesn't happen in 2023. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Let's come to the energy transition, which has probably taken a hit in the past year. We've witnessed the energy crisis in Europe. We've also seen companies, including in Canada, start to back away from ambitious net zero targets. What do you think the consequences will be? Has the climate agenda been mugged by reality to a certain extent? It's been it's been given a shock by reality, but I believe it's been accelerated by reality. Mm. Uh, I, I, and I, I think this is the war in Ukraine is as horrific as it's been from a humanitarian point of view and as expensive and as, and yes, it's made the energy situation more complicated, but it's also clarified minds about this, the tremendous, the, the, the present energy patterns both make democratic societies very vulnerable and they also empower some of the worst actors in the world. And we have, we have to, for security reasons, as well as environmental ones, we have to make this transition. I'm encouraged that the Germans have kept their nuclear power plants operating a little bit longer. I'm encouraged that the state of California is keeping its last nuclear power plant operating a little bit longer. Uh, nuclear, in my opinion, has always had to be part of the answer to energy security within with environmental protection. I think what we also have gotten smarter about, I hope, is un, is not using the phrase fossil fuels anymore and understanding that coal, oil, and natural gas are very, very different things. And that natural gas is has to be part of the transition. Coal and oil are the immediate problems. Um, and you can retire coal and you can retire oil much faster than you can retire gas. And so it has been very unhelpful 
And I, th- I hope Canadians are waking up to this, that to say we, we want to stop gas pipelines and gas projects in the name of f- fighting carbon emissions. That is really not helpful because the only way you cannot get from here to there without gas as an integral part of the solution. And you're going to need some oil for some time yet. So we're going to have to hope for a little bit of good luck that the climate is resilient enough to allow us to survive on a politically possible timetable without crisis, that maybe there will be ecological crises in the 2040s and 2050s. But we are, I think governments are seized of this and we are going to begin to have to move. And when the, the war in Ukraine ends, the Russian war in Ukraine, it's not Ukraine's war, it's Russia's war. When that, when that war ends, I think you're going to see a lot of impetus in Europe to say, okay, the oil era, just as we have gotten past the coal era in the developed world, we have to get past the oil era. The gas era is going to be with us for a while longer. How should Canadian policymakers respond to the developments that you just outlined? How, in other words, can Canada manage the trade-offs between our ambitious climate goals Mm. uh, and economic, social, and and political challenges associated with so-called getting off of oil? Yeah. Well, in Canada, nuclear really, I mean, given the climate in Canada, the, the idea that you're going to have a solar-fueled economy is is not very plausible. And nuclear is going to have to be part of the Canadian response. Um, and Canada has a, a major responsibility and opportunity as an exporter of gas. And again, I have to appeal to people that don't stop. We have to be very clear when we talk about a pipeline, about the difference in an oil pipeline and a gas pipeline. And we probably have built out the oil architecture as much as we're ever going to do it. But we haven't finished building out the natural gas architecture. Our friends and partners need Canadian natural gas. The United States has shifted a lot of its gas export from the Pacific to the Atlantic, bound for Europe. Canada could take up, I mean, but Japan and and South Korea need need gas. And and it's better that China burn more gas than, than it burn more coal. It's going to need gas too. And Canada, through the Pacific projects that are not yet completed, but should have been, um, could could be part of that solution, allowing the United States to be more of a supplier to Europe. One thing that I think people all need to keep in mind is we talk about the gas problem. From North America, we were talking about liquefied natural gas, of course. And building the terminals that smush the gas together and turn it into liquid is a much bigger and more expensive project than building the terminals that unpack the gas. So that... That has been delayed too long. It shouldn't be delayed any longer. We have to go, go, go. Let's wrap up by looking backwards and then looking forwards. In terms of the former, what positively surprised you in 2022? I think the great theme of 2022 has to be the resilience of, of the human spirit. And the Ukrainians brave resistance in places like Hong Kong, that a lot of places that are not part of the democratic core have reminded people of the democratic core. What we have and take for granted other people want. And while our culture is in this self-critical mood and is lowering flags and beating the breast and thinking, oh, let us think about all of the terrible things we've done in our past. Everyone else is saying, are you joking? What you have, that this is, the, you have figured out the best set of answers to collective problems that anyone in the history of the world has ever figured out. We want that. Stop criticizing it, start exporting it or resume exporting it. And if you won't believe in ourselves, maybe you'll listen to us when we say we believe in you. So that has been, to my mind, the most positive and inspiring thing about 2022. And let's see more of that in 2023. 
Besides developments along those lines, what else are you looking towards in, in 2023? One of the virtues of these conversations, David, is you've, you've helped our listeners and viewers think about some of these big trends over the course of the past year. What should they be looking towards in terms of some of the issues or topics that will shape the, the coming 12 months? I think we have been through a, a decade where narrow and selfish nationalism have tended to get the upper hand in public policy, not just in the United States, but everywhere. We have we have seen the the area of um, as it's been called slow a slowization, where you know we 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 are trading less uh, from 1990 to 2010. World trade expanded faster than world economic output since 2010. It is world trade has expanded slower, and that's partly there's some economic reasons for that, but a lot of that is is politics. The Ukraine war shows us, I think, how important collective action is and how the democratic world, it's not just a bunch, it's not just a bunch of countries who are mutually suspicious. It really is an entity in itself. And narrow national that you can't toss, you can't say we're going to put fill in your country here first, America first, Britain first, Greece first, and not elicit an equally chauvinistic reaction mm-hmm. from all the people who should be your friends and partners. And 41 taught a previous generation the folly of that kind of way of thinking, of the folly of the America First slogan. And that's not, and that's, and you jettison that not to be a martyr or self sacrificing. You jettison it because actually you will achieve more of your own goals in cooperation with like minded people than you will ever achieve on your own. And trade is a place to start, energy cooperation is a place to start. You know, we are never going to have a one nation leading the way approach to carbon. That's a mistake that, that is made in Ottawa. I think there can be a Canadian policy on carbon. There can't be. There can only be a collective policy on carbon. And different countries will have to make different rules and laws under that policy. But we're going to need um, some kind of at least North America wide and maybe larger carbon policy. And because Mexico has been so uncooperative on this issue, it may be an illusion to hope it can be a North American policy. So it's going to be a developed world policy. And we have to work together with friends and allies. So the theme for 2023 is we've lost sight of the power of the idea of international cooperation among democratic countries. Let's rediscover that power. Uh, just as an aside before my my final question, it, it reminds me in part, David, of my former boss, Stephen Harper's uh, notion of enlightened sovereignty, which he put forward in the context of the global financial crisis. It seems to me we need to rediscover the virtues of enlightened sovereignty to deal with some of the, the various subjects uh, that we've talked about today and over the course of the past year. My, my final question is something that we've talked about on, on, on this show, but also we've covered a lot at the Hub over the course of 2022. And that is nascent signs of breakthrough discoveries and technological progress that may break us out of what's sometimes called secular stagnation, what has been referred to as the so-called 2% trap in terms of economic growth in Canada, the US, and other developed countries. What's your sense, David? Are, are we on the cusp of a kind of step change in, in our economies that will help to create a kind of positive sum environment or conditions that have really been missing for the better part of a decade or longer? Well, I've never been a believer in the secular stagnation theory. I've never been a believer in these theories about decadence or economic slowdown. I think that there are a couple of things that have been going on. One is we needed to have a baby boom in the 1990s, and, and we didn't have one. So the developed world is full of 
middle-aged, risk, more risk-averse people, not a lot of young people taking crazy chances and experimenting with wild ideas, and many of them wrong, but some of them right. <laughs> um, so uh, the most important thing you can do, get due to juice that kind of economic growth is th- th- let's have that baby boom in the 2020s. We need more young people across the developed world. And, and Im- immigration doesn't do it because immigrants arrive not so young. They arrive um, actually past ch- uh, childbirth. And in any way, that, uh, you, you can't replace your society. By, and that's a verb that's, that's in disgrace, but that you, can, you cannot substitute for your own regeneration by having other people do it for you. So that, I, I, but I, I, there's also a problem. I think a lot of the statistics about productivity and economic growth are based on, the, 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 the answers you get are based on the assumptions you plug into them. And there may be some defects in that. And, and I have never bought this idea that there's, that, there, that there's something unsatisfying about the progress that comes from computer technology. Last thought. There are breakthrough inventions, but most of human progress has come by taking pre-existing inventions and putting them together. I mean, for, for uh, you know, it took people a long time after the invention of the wheel to realize that the wheel could be used for transportation. You know, they, they had other, they used it for pottery, they, they used it for other kinds of purposes. The idea of, well, what if we take four of these wheels and put some planks planks between them, then what have we got? And then attach them to a domesticated animal, then what have you got? So, you know, it's the same thing with the computer. I remember the computer in the 1980s, there were all these questions. We've got these incredible computers, but we, we're seeing no productivity effect. Why not? And the answer is, well, because we're using them as typewriters. You have to hook them together to see what they can do. Mm. So I think we're going to see a series of, of in- incremental changes. That, and I think one of the biggest incremental changes is that is going to come is the way we are going to deal. I've always believed the way we're going to deal with our carbon problems is not by changing our energy sources so dramatically, although we'll have to do that, but by changing the way we live. And COVID did that to us. That habit of commuting less of integrating work and family and play into, into more coherent neighborhoods, um, that's, that is, that's the kind of incremental change that is going to have all kinds of effects in the way housing is built, the way road use, roads are used, in energy consumption. So think not so much about the breakthrough, super genius, eureka moment in the lab, but think about people cooperatively assembling existing inventions and new ones into, for new, new ways of life. Well, that's a great way to wrap up today's episode and and a series of episodes over the past 12 months. David Frum, I want to thank you for joining me. I look forward to reconnecting in 2023. Happy holidays to to you and your family. Bye-bye. Happy New Year to you. Thank you for listening to this special presentation of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornoski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.